Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's Monday, October 9th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca, which means it is Columbus Day today, or as it is also called, Indigenous People Day or Peoples not on calendars or in banks is it called indigenous people's day in some calendars depending on your state my google calendar says it but my google calendar also tells me it's columbus day i'm not sure how both show up do they know about my leanings and predilections or can there be different settings for however you'd like your google calendar to best reflect your understanding of reality and social justice christmas or solstice nurturer's day or mother's day flag day or jingoism awareness week I usually call this day Columbus Indigenous People's Day, like the full hyphenated phrase, as if it were a marriage, albeit a bad marriage, a murderous one, you might say. But there was a time when I just called this day Columbus Day, and I don't mean when I was in elementary school in 1977. No, I just went by what it said on the calendars and the banks. Man, do I defer to the big banks. I got to watch out for that. Here was a sign-off from this show in 2015. Listen to how I talked about the day. No show on Monday to honor Columbus. I remember when I did that sign-off, some of my colleagues at the time gave me the stink eye. But we left it alone. I guess they figured Columbus, you know, Pesca, he's Italian. Don't tangle with an impassioned Italian on this. Or when it comes to their mother's sauce, ooh, that woman's a saint. I will not have you besmirch her gravy or the discoverer of this country. Only, I think we know Columbus did not discover America, although he did land at some good PR. Columbus himself landed in PR in 1493, his second voyage. But even judged against the mores and methods of the time, he really was, we gotta admit, a brutal nasty guy. He had to be to get done what he did, you could argue. I mean, the Nina and the Pinta ain't going to sell themselves. Am I right? You know what I mean? Santa Maria! But I have looked over my past opinions on Columbus, my past defenses of keeping the holiday named for him. And you know what? As I am wont to do on this program, I came to the conclusion that I was wrong. In fact, I didn't brand it at the time as a special gist I was wrong segment. I just reconsidered my past endorsement of Columbus Day as Columbus Day. And then in 2020, I issued a spiel that I'm going to play for you. And then after that, after you hear my discussion of Columbus and should we honor him with statues in the day, I will bring you a 2015 interview with Steve Inskeep, who had just written a book about President Andrew Jackson and the chief of the Cherokee, John Ross. Steve Inskeep was just on the gist talking about his Lincoln book, 
So he also wrote about Democratic presidents, and this particular one did not have as laudable a track record. So enjoy, or I guess at least consider, Christopher Columbus and Andrew Jackson, two American heroes whose heroism might inspire us to aspire for more in our heroes. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Today, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo was asked to address the idea of Columbus Circle becoming just Circle. Uh, Christopher Columbus, I understand the dialogue has been going on for a number of years. The Christopher Columbus uh, statue represents uh, in, in some ways the Italian-American legacy in this country uh, and the Italian-American contribution in this country. I understand the feelings about Christopher Columbus uh, and uh, some of his acts, which uh, nobody would support. But the statue was has come to represent and signify Uh, appreciation for the Italian-American contribution to New York. Uh, So on that, for that reason, I support it. The statue of Christopher Columbus in some ways represents the Italian-American legacy. Well, as an Italian-American, can I say, oy vey. And as a Jewish-American, might I also add, oh, maran. I noticed Cuomo's answer had this quality. Cuomo was saying, well, let's not even talk about any of the facts of what Columbus did. It's what he represents now to Italian-Americans now. This, by the way, is the same argument for keeping the Confederate flag on state flags, on NASCAR paint, on Leonard Skinner denim jackets. It has come to mean something to the people of that place in this moment. Now, if you listen to the gist, you know that I am very much against judging a different time with the standards of the present. Also, vice versa. If Andrew Cuomo went to Columbus's time, he would be ostracized, perhaps worse, for living out of wedlock. Plus, he backs gay marriage. He generally says things that accommodate the Jews that, in fact, would probably cause him to be burned at the stake because Columbus's sponsors, Ferdinand and Isabella, did establish the Spanish Inquisition. Bet you didn't expect that. Nobody does. But it is correct. Columbus sailed August 1492. Five months before that, Ferdinand issued the Alhambra Decree, otherwise known as the Edict of Expulsion of the Jews. Now, to take some examples, I don't think that Princeton needs to, unless they want to, remove the name Woodrow Wilson from their School of Foreign Affairs, because Woodrow Wilson was a president of the United States, and he was a singular force in establishing the United States' place in the world. He was also a virulent racist, so I understand not making students sleep in a dorm named for Woodrow Wilson. I get that Yale took Calhoun off the name of one of its colleges because John C. Calhoun supported the institution of slavery with an unrivaled fervor. But Columbus, Ohio and Columbia, South Carolina or the District of Columbia, these are place names and they do spring from Christopher Columbus, but they also reflect the name of the new country. 
with the new Columbia. That is what America was called. And then place names, like all proper names, take on their own meaning, become their own thing. The meaning of words change. But a statue of a man to that man is about that man. So let us talk about that man. He was not a good man. His legacy wasn't even what you might call a mixed legacy insofar as there was great good that he did, but also a little bit of bad. No, I would say that finding the new world had been done before. I wouldn't say that. I mean, I did say that, but it is a true thing that it had been done before and it would have been done again, probably shortly after Columbus did it. The North and South American landmass, plus all the Caribbean islands, they are pretty big. Europe was going to get here. Boats do float. But the best scholarship really does indicate that Columbus was a brutal man who you could accuse of cruelty, but maybe not even cruelty because dehumanization might be a better word for how he treated the indigenous people he came across, not his people at all. And it also, and this is important, wasn't in keeping with the times. That is another legitimate thing to think about. George Washington was, as a Southern plantation owner, in keeping with the thinking of his milieu, of his era, of his social class. It's not a blanket excuse for the slave owning that George Washington did, but I say take it into a consideration when evaluating the past. Columbus, on the other hand, appalled his own crew members, appalled clergy who traveled with him. He and his brothers governed as tyrants. You know, in 2006, Spanish historians uncovered a document of testimony, essentially, against Columbus, who was a very cruel and petty leader. There was an investigation that was set off when Ferdinand and Isabella heard rumors of Columbus's cruelty and greed. He once cut off a man's nose and ears for stealing corn. He ordered a woman paraded through town naked and had her tongue cut off for insulting the Columbus family's non-aristocratic origins. He, of course, put down insurrections by natives. This wasn't just the system of slavery and torture that he did set up. That's well documented. What I'm talking about are recently revealed contemporaneous accounts that he was a tyrant as judged by his time. And he was a failure as a leader in his time. Columbus was ordered back to Spain and then jailed. He had failed. He was a tyrant. That is a bad avatar for a country that prides itself on being the world's first modern democracy. Now, here's what happened with Columbus. Hundreds of years after his actual actions, a new narrative began to be written about him. Very importantly, Washington Irving wrote A History of the Life and Voyages of Christopher Columbus. The genre we would now assign to that work would be historical fiction. But back then, it was just taken as a history. Irving was an avowed nationalist. That, that's not a bad thing for a young country. He wrote it in 1828. He was literally and literarily engaged in the creation of a national hero and a national myth, and he wasn't going to let facts get in his way. You could argue when the book was published, the nation needed some foundation myths. You can also argue that within a few decades, as more Italians became Italian-Americans, it was natural that they would cite Columbus as an excellent hero, as a great counter-argument against the discrimination they faced. Wait, you're telling me as an Italian, I'm not a real American? The entire country and continent of America was founded by an Italian. So the argument went. The Columbus myth began to become stuffed, full of scientific achievement he didn't earn, an air of genius he didn't deserve. And you can see why the symbol of Columbus became very valuable, even 
a necessary thing for Italian-Americans trying to assert their place within this country. Then in the next few decades after that, and certainly since the discovery of these new records, what Columbus really was and how he led his life and governed and explored came to light. The many virtues of Columbus had been misattributed and the vices were underreported. I say there is no logical argument for the preservation of Columbus's legacy or the hero worship of the actual man. When you know what he really did stand for, it is hard to want your country to be associated with him. It's hard to want your ancestry to be associated with him. I don't think he reflects poorly on the Italians. I just don't think he reflects much on the Italians, nor should he be made to. I say these things not because I don't believe in America, not because I'm not proud of Italian-Americans. I believe in the promise of America. I'm proud of my Italian-American heritage. I mean, you know, somewhat proud. I like my dad and Andrew Cuomo's dad. I like Galileo and da Vinci. Here's the thing. The Jesuits were founded to dispute Galileo, but came to realize, hey, Galileo was right. So they said so. Credit to them. The Knights of Columbus could be rebranded, if they choose to, as the Guardians of Galileo or the Division of da Vinci. Or if you want to go Italian-American, the forces of Fermi, Enrico Fermi. He made the bomb. But in any case, the justifications for the continued presence of Christopher Columbus high above Columbus Circle in Central Park's northwest corner, there are very few. Let's go through them. Is it the case that his legacy was mixed with some bad but mostly good? No, not the case. Is it an unreasonable standard being applied to Columbus, whose work was well-known and well-understood for many years? No, no. New information is surface. It's not just new sensitivities. It's literally new facts. And an enlightened people, as I like to be, we have a responsibility to update our thinking when new facts arise or come to light. Is it the case that what we see now out of Columbus, what we see as immorality today, was at the time countenanced, approved of, maybe even necessary? Again, that's not the case. Are we dishonoring the heritage of a people? I think not. The people, the Italian-Americans, my people, were taught to revere Columbus, but now they can show their strength by surrendering the myth, show that they're capable of updating their thinking. Prominent Italian-American Andrew Cuomo can show that he's transcended tribalism. It'll give him some standing. At least it won't totally undercut any argument he might make in favor of, say, southern cities taking down Confederate statues or military bases, doing away with Confederate nomenclature, And the other argument, the good argument against removing a Columbus statue is this. His presence offends so many people. Yeah, I know today it's easy to say everyone's offended by everything. But in this case, I don't sense it as a performative, oversensitive offense. You don't need to be schooled in a specific academic world to see the truth about Columbus as a person. And you don't have to be anti-American to really not want to connect that truth to your country. In fact, the more pro-American you are, probably the more you want to run away from the actual Columbus. I think for New York State's Italian-American governor, New York City's Italian-American mayor, to back the removal of the statue would show us that they have thrown out a bit of their own tribalism. I mean, maybe get a new commission on it, De Niro, Joe Torre, every fire commissioner for the last 18 years, and you could think of some new Columbus statue. I say keep the variations of Columbia as a place or organization name and find a new hero or heroine to honor and perhaps even to put on a pedestal. 
Andrew Jackson, I think he is the most fought over figure in U.S. history. He was a racist patriot. He was a daring general who was courageous and brave, yet also rapacious and opportunistic as a land speculator. He looked at an unformed continent, breathed life into it, but he looked at scores of other human beings and ignored their humanity in favor of his own ambition. He animates and gives title to Steve Inskeep's new book, Jackson Land. But that's not the entire title, because the sub- title is President Andrew Jackson, Cherokee Chief John Ross, and a great American land grab. Steve Inskeep, host of NPR's Morning Edition, is here. Hello, Steve. Love that little essay you began with, Mike. Thank you very much. (laughs) So is it to my discredit, is it mostly my fault that the name John Ross to me, okay, because it was next to Jackson in the title, and alone I might not have recognized it. I said, yes, he was the chief of the Cherokees during the Trail of Tears. He was the butt end of that famous phrase that might not have been uttered about uh, Supreme Court Justice John Marshall. Mr. Marshall made his decision, now let him enforce it. But I didn't really know that much about John Ross. Well, most things I'd like to think are to your discredit, uh-huh, Mike, yeah. um, but not this one, not this one. I'd never heard of this guy three or four years ago, principal chief of the Cherokee Nation, uh, and a guy who's, there's been a couple of biographies. There's been some excellent scholars. I don't mean to say no work has been done. I learned from other people on this, but uh, to the general public, he's a figure you've read a line about in a book or read absolutely nothing about, and I'd never heard of this guy, but he rises to the occasion in this story, in my view. You and is a worthy opponent to Andrew Jackson for more than 20 years. And he was what he once served under Jackson. Yeah, yeah. They are, they're both veterans of the War of 1812. Andrew Jackson was a general who won great victories in the War of 1812, which made him a national hero and made him president. John Ross was a Cherokee who joined something called the Cherokee Regiment because the Cherokees wanted to fight on the side of the United States because they were more or less trying to join up with the United States, which was spreading across the continent at that time. And they both fought, Ross and Jackson, at the Battle of Horseshoe Bend, which was a great victory for Jackson uh, and which Ross found ways to make use of in later life as well. Yes. And the fact that Jackson had uh, Cherokees under him, used the Cherokees as sort of the tip of the spear to kill Creek Indians, or, you know, they were his opponents in the Battle of Horseshoe Bend. But it gets at, I think, what some of his values were. Because he always, as you point out, he always wanted to make right with the fact that Cherokees were uh, in his employer, you know, served him as a general. Yet at the same time, he really was what we would call racist. And even at the time, it's not true that he was, you know, somewhere in the in the middle of attitudes. He was seen as a pretty vicious fellow at during his own time. Well, he was a slave owner. So let's not beat around the bush about that. And he owned multiple plantations, not just the Hermitage where his mansion still stands. And he did terrible things to Native Americans. But I find him a more complicated figure and in some ways a modern figure that we can think about a lot. And Mike, you cover, you've covered the sports world. You've covered business. You've covered a lot of different things. I think you may recognize this kind of guy. I mean, to some extent, maybe we're all like this. Andrew Jackson, in my research, could be fair. 
He, for example, wanted his Cherokee soldiers to receive the same pay and benefits as white soldiers, and when he found out after the war that some of the Cherokee widows weren't getting their proper death benefits as they should have, as white widows were, he went to bat for them. So he could be fair, but he was this guy who also had an intense desire to win, and this notion, which is really common in the 19th century, of interest. If you had an interest in something, which really meant an economic or financial interest, your morals could be shoved over to the side and everybody would sort of understand. And so Jackson could be fair except when he had an interest. And then the rules were the rules were gone. Well, you write again and again the four-letter word that describes Jackson is just, his sense of what is just, and that that dictated his actions. Somebody in the audience was thinking you were going for jerk, I think. <laughs> but, but yes, just, yes. He would capitalize it in his life. Letters. He believed in justice, um, but it was going to be his own definition of justice, his own idea of what was just. So he was a slave owner. Let's just, let's talk about that a little bit. Our, so many of our founding fathers were, and to some yeah. degree or another, Jefferson, Washington grappled with it. You know, we're finding out maybe Washington didn't grapple with it as much as we, as much as the myth would have us believe. But Jackson wasn't just a passive slave owner or someone who seemed deeply torn by the ambivalence of owning slaves. No, no, he he bought into the system. Uh, and I think this is another place where interest comes into play. It was the rule at the time. It was the rule where he was. And unlike other people at that time, he didn't think very much about it because it wasn't in his interest to think very much about it. He bought his first slave when he was a very young man. He was moving west. He was trying to rise in the world. I imagine being a slave owner was uh, a mark of distinction. And it's very interesting that the first record of a slave uh, purchase was of a young woman. Uh, and I don't know precisely what he did with that young woman. Uh, we can imagine. Um, and he went further west, and he not only had a few slaves, he had dozens, and at some points, clearly hundreds of slaves, and he was a slave trader. Yeah, you make uh, a distinction about that. What is the what is the difference? Yeah, this is really interesting, and I, I first learned about this distinction years ago in reading a biography of Nathan Bedford Forrest, the Confederate uh, cavalryman and founder of the KKK, who was also a, a slave trader. In the South, as Southern culture developed, there was an elaborate system, and and someone will correct me if you think I'm wrong, but there was an elaborate system, as I've come to understand it, of figuring out ways to live with the idea of owning other people and never quite looking it in the face. One thing that people would do was not call it slavery. They'd call it our domestic institution mm -hmm. or the peculiar institution. And another thing was by inventing gradations of behavior. If you were going to own slaves, you were going to buy and sell slaves. But it was decided that slave trading was an evil business. And in fact, there were efforts to ban the transatlantic slave trade at the very beginning of the country, long before anybody actually seriously thought about abolishing slavery itself. And so slave trading was seen as this disreputable business for disreputable people and not something that a high-toned, high-class person would do, although owning slaves was considered uh, perfectly fine. Mm -hmm. Jackson didn't care about all that hypocrisy. He was happy to just do whatever was in his interest. So there's a certain honesty to Jackson's position, although we can wish today, uh, and I'm sure many people wished then that he would have been honest and, and avoided hypocrisy by avoiding the whole thing. I think this gets to a fundamental 
the crux of the issue with Jackson. Now, if you look at the historical rankings, I bet you've done this. So in 1948, I guess Schlesinger was the first one who surveyed historians, and Jackson came in sixth, the sixth greatest president of all time. Hmm. And he kind of hung around there for a little while. But then in recent... And then the BCS rankings came along, and things <laughs> yeah, were very exactly. different at that point. The no, no, go on, go on, go on. Okay. So then so then as you reach, if as you read through history, what historians thought of Jackson, it got a little worse and worse. And I think as lately, there's been maybe a backlash or a rebacklash with the John Meacham Pulitzer Prize winning book in 2009. But we begin to think of Jackson worse. And I don't know if that's because we uncover more facts about him or just because we tend to judge him against the mores of modern society. And as modern society changes, Jackson looks worse in retrospect. I think the answer is yes to your multiple choice question, Mm -hmm. because there's a little bit of each of those things. Our mores, our idea of what is right has changed. uh, And Jackson does, in fact, look worse as we look more critically at different parts of our history. There's also more information that is known. uh, And it's just more, it's just broadcast in a different way. The stories of Cherokees, for example, have always been available, but I don't think that they were widely publicized. And many of the big biographies of Jackson, which are still available, just had very minor minor parts for the Cherokees to play uh, and for the Indians broadly to play. They were, they were distant enemies. They were unfortunate poor people. Uh, they were opponents of Jackson. They might even be treated sympathetically, but kind of patronizingly mm-hmm. and very briefly in a lot of the big histories. And now the information that's always sort of been there is dragged out. And there's, and there's new information, too. I mean, in, in my book, I, I investigate this man's real estate dealings in a way that I don't think is precise been done before. And I made a calculation based on federal land records that Jackson and his friends obtained vast amounts, 45,000 acres to be precise, of former Cherokee land that Jackson had grabbed as a public official for the United States. And he ended up arranging for it to get into his private hands and other people's private hands. And they put cotton plantations, slave plantations on that land and, and, and made a fortune. They also built cities. They were colonizing the area. They were building a new world. They were leaving a legacy. But it is a really, really, really dark and complicated legacy. Yeah. And as to your point about the Cherokees being shunted aside, the other historical trend is they don't fit into the great man of history now. And who doesn't, if not Andrew Jackson, with his hair and his picture on the $20 bill. But here you're talking about... Yeah. Here you're talking about John Ross. And the phrase you use about him and the Cherokees, skilled political operators who played a bad hand long and well. And in this country, we do not honor the guy who makes things less bad. We don't lionize, to use the sports metaphor, right? The pitcher who comes in and ho- and the team's down by four and doesn't let it get more out of hand. Yeah. Or, or, or Obama, when the economy was going poorly and President Obama would say, well, things could be could have been worse. He got no credit. The polls did not like that answer. It was only until the actual economy began to improve. So... That, that he got a little bit of credit. So in that way, John Ross doesn't fit in or hadn't fit into how we looked at history because ultimately the Cherokee weren't the winners. Yeah, that's so true. Uh, history is written by the winners, isn't it? And the, the losers were shoved off to the side. And I think that you made a, a very apt description of John Ross. He made things a little less bad than they than they would have been. Uh, the Cherokees held out longer than, than many other people did. They didn't get into a bloody war in doing that. The Trail of Tears was deadly and devastating, but Ross was able to cut a deal to make that slightly less bad at the end. Uh, he's a political figure. He's an imperfect person. He had his own vanities and flaws. 
laws and was also, by the way, a slave owner. Uh, and so he's an imperfect person fighting against Andrew Jackson, who's an imperfect person. And the more that I learned about this story and I've thought about it, I've realized that that's actually what the story is about. What should be at the center of our history is not great men or, for that matter, great women. We should have heroes, and some people deserve to be heroes, but we're all imperfect. And what is actually at the center of our story is democracy itself and the great contest of imperfect people in a democracy to fight against each other, get to a result, screw up, fight against each other some more, and hopefully get a little better result the next time. Hmm. Where'd your interest in Andrew Jackson come from? Um, well, it, it came from, from modern politics, actually. I've always been interested in the 1830s. I've always read history. I, I studied history in school. And, um, and so I was interested in the 1830s. And in recent years, I began to think that our politics was just a total mess. I know that will be a surprise to you, Mike. <laughs> well, the only reason you think that is because you've been paying attention. <laughs> well, okay, that's true. It's true. Many people don't. But in any case, yes, I'm paying attention and, and it's a mess. Yeah. And, and I began thinking, like, where did this come from? And it drove me back into history. And I got to this era, the 1830s, that I'd already been interested in, that was the beginning of our democracy. And it was really great to read the letters and newspapers of the time and see people behaving in ways that I recognized. Well, I was also wondering, given all the wars you've covered, that these themes of a, a new young democracy having to deal with or integrate or maybe not integrate a nettlesome minority, I mean, that's what's going on in the events in Jackson land. That's what's going on in Iraq and Afghanistan, where you've spent a lot of time. Oh, absolutely. You have different groups of people. You have people in the majority and people in the minority. You have conflicts over land. You have conflicts over power. And you have especially a struggle to establish institutions that are universally respected where people can work out their differences or maybe not work them out precisely, fight them out and see who wins and fight again and see who wins that time. And when you study the early United States, you have a period where our institutions had not fully been created and weren't necessarily as solid as they would be later. And you had a Supreme Court with a great Chief Justice, John Marshall, but you didn't have a guarantee that the, that the president would actually follow a Supreme Court order, for example. And so you, you have... You do have this thing that makes you think of, of modern times because it's about land, because it's about different people clashing and trying to figure out their rights and, and how to mediate their rights. And, and it's about what kind of government makes sense for human beings. All right. Last question. Who should be on the $20 bill? Well, uh, I've given an answer to that in the New York Times uh, in an article a couple of weeks ago. I proposed that it should be John Ross in the $20 bill. Uh, but then on the other side, there should be Andrew Jackson, because those two guys together tell a story, and they symbolize a democratic era, and they symbolize democracy itself. And I want to do that with the other bills as well. You could have Ulysses S. Grant on one bill, the $50 bill, and Harriet Beecher Stowe on the other side. Grant's armies ended the Civil War. Stowe's book, Uncle Tom's Cabin, helped to start it. You could have Lincoln on one bill, and on the other side, Frederick Douglass, the escaped slave who pushed him uh, to end slavery faster. You could tell democratic stories about democracy itself on our money. And we get back to what, we're, what we were saying before. Then it's not the great man theory of money. It's the democratic theory of money. Next up, Steve Inskeep resculpts Mount Rushmore. We'll do that. <laughs> Steve Inskeep, the author of Jackson Land, President Andrew Jackson, Cherokee Chief John Ross, and a great American land grab. Thanks a lot, Steve. Mike, thanks to you. It's an honor. 
And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pesca wears many hats, and she uses many of them to swat at lanternflies and collect lobsters. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oom Peru, G Peru, Do Peru, and thanks for listening.